Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Long ago, a little girl, afraid to make mistakes, dreamed of becoming a doctor. If only Rasha Aridi had been there to help her learn why being wrong is so right. But it's never too late to learn. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Rasha, science journalist and self-professed nerd who passionately believes that science is for everybody. Arasha, I'm a little girl in school, and I am a person who loves the arts. I love music, and I love writing in my journals, and I love painting pictures, and I feel like a fool when it comes to the STEM subjects, math and science. Why is it important, do you think, for me not to limit myself? Or how can I be more curious and open about learning about science? I think science is kind of presented to us in this cut and dry manner, but a lot of the time we don't realize how much creativity goes into it. I mean, you have to think of creative questions to ask. You have to think of a creative experiment or an experimental setup to walk through, walk yourself through, and creative applications for what you do with this new knowledge that you have. So science is constantly fluid, just like the arts, right? Like, yeah, it can be technical, and there's some like big words in there that I also don't love. I mean, I grew up like also challenged by science and especially math. And I think if you can kind of talk yourself over that like hurdle, that first hurdle of like intimidation, there are endless questions, right? Like even if you figure something out, there's always a new question you can ask, always a new angle. And if you're into like art or writing or history or whatever, like you already know that feeling, right? Like you don't finish a project and you stop, you keep going, there's always something new. And it's the same thing with science. It's never ending. You're never going to run out of questions to ask. I mean, not every topic in science is interesting to me, but science is everything, right? It's the air we breathe, the food we eat, the wildlife around us, the environment, the climate. I mean, it's everywhere. So if you can even pick out one little niche of science that like applies to yourself and find some kind of beauty in that, it makes science feel so much more personal than just like data analysis and the hypothesis and the workflow kind of deal. How would you counsel or what would you tell the little girl who's striving hard trying to prove herself that she's good enough and has to get straight A's in it? So without a sense of fun, if that makes sense. I think that's probably the fastest way to burn out, right? Like Mm. I, as a college student, I had friends who were pre-med, who had their eyes set on becoming doctors or veterinarians or getting their PhD in whatever subject that 
it just kind of turned into tunnel vision. And instead of loving science and the process, it just kind of felt like a chore. Like I need to get over this one step. I need to finish my undergrad with a 4.0 and move on to this new chapter of my life. But to have science like kind of feel like a chore for four years, it's really hard to step out of it when you want to go higher up. Like, so by the time you get to med school or vet school or whatever you want to do, you're exhausted. When you kind of have tunnel vision like that, that you forget all of the beauty and nuance and creativity that goes into science. And then it does feel like more structured and rigid than what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And if you can kind of develop this habit of looking at science as something that's evolving, that's fluid, that's dynamic, you kind of like build a relationship with it. You kind of figure out ways to think about it that doesn't feel so exhausting. And that's really hard, right? Like I wanted to go to vet school for a little while and mm. I was sitting there with my flashcards repeating it over and over and over. And that's one of the reasons I quit science altogether is I realized this wasn't for me. And for me, I know it's a good choice, but for other people who really want to pursue this, like take a step back, look at the fun in it, the joy, the adventure. I mean, no two days are going to be the same as a scientist. Scientists cover a million different topics. I mean, it is such a wide field that kind of don't make yourself hate it, I guess. Like, give it the time and space and the patience to find joy in it. I found you through an article that you had written, and I was so impressed by how you were able to take the complex subject that you were dissecting for us and you made it so approachable and and what I felt in there was this lightness too and I could tell because having read a lot of scientific journalism it tends to be super boring and it tends to be written from a very academic perspective and I applaud you for the, the way you write. And it's why I was geeking out and I couldn't wait to meet you and start and do this interview because I wanted to nerd out with you. <laughs> oh, thank you. How did you find your way into doing that and say to yourself th at the time, okay, vet school is not for me, but this is writing about science? Yeah, so I had my eyes on vet school for a little bit. And I was like, this is too competitive. Like everyone's kind of gunning for this very competitive position. So I was like, let me try wildlife conservation. So I switched my major and I was having such a great time with it. Like I, all my labs were outside. I got to learn about animals and that's like my favorite thing to geek out about. But I still found myself sitting there with the flashcards and the memorization and digging through all this scientific, these papers. And I was like, this isn't fun. Like I'm once again, not having a good time, not enjoying what I'm doing. But I loved all the knowledge that I got from it. And I would like come home and I would like bamboozle my roommate with like facts about like possums or like <laughs> salamanders or whatever I had learned about that day. And I'd like come home to visit my parents and like teach them all the birds that would come to their bird feeder and like why they need to stop mowing their lawn every week. And I find my found myself like having a much more meaningful impact. Like even that that tiny, tiny scale with my like friends and family that I enjoyed giving them this scientific knowledge in a way that's like fun, accessible, relevant, that's something they can see with their own eyes. And I was like, this is what brings me joy, right? Like, I don't wanna sit in a lab or be out in the field with a data sheet. Like, I want to be connecting with people. 
And so as I was kind of going through college, I was like, I need a little more like creative stimulation here. So I added another degree in journalism. And then a little while later, I was like, hold on, hold on. Here's an idea. Let me do science journalism. That way I can geek out all I want, but I also have the skill to do it. Like I have a way to present this information, whether it's through a written article, video, a podcast like this. I found like a vehicle for a way to like communicate my excitement to other people. And I like kind of stumbled upon this because I was reading like my favorite article ever in like a National Geographic magazine a few years ago. And I was like, it was like an article about why octopuses remind us so much of ourselves. And I was reading this and I was completely enthralled because this author had made like this beautiful connection between octopuses, which we like, right? They're so weird. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's not like we don't see ourselves in, like an octopus. It's an mm-hmm. invertebrate. It lives under the ocean. It's kind of weird and slimy. But like building that connection, like over the course of the article was so meaningful for me. And I was like, holy cow, I love octopuses. And I was like, this lady within a span of like a 10 minute article turned like her excitement and channeled it into something relevant to my mm-hmm. life. And I was like, if I can do that for other people in regards to the climate, the planet, wildlife, whatever, that's what I want to do. And so I also don't want to read like a boring article about science. So I'm not going to write something that I would never read. So when I'm writing, I'm kind of thinking like, how can I make this relevant? How can I make it fun? How can I take this super complex paper and like the interviews that I've done with the scientists and the researchers and like package that super nicely so that by the time it gets to someone's magazine or like their phone or their computer, that they're excited to read it, that I did all the hard work crunching the data and the analysis for them. Um, And so that's why I ended up in science journalism. And it's been so meaningful for me to be able to reach out to people and connect with them in that way. And like, I mean, this is how I met you. And I've gotten emails from other readers being like, this was so fun to read about. Like, I never thought about biochemistry in this way. And I'm like, nobody ever thinks of biochemistry (laughs) or like the climate or whatever we're talking about, right? In like that technical way. So if I can make it fun, then I can do the hard work for other people and package science in a way that's fun and fresh and like exciting. Cause that's in essence what it is, but that's not the way it's presented to us. Okay, so two follow-up questions. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's written from such an academic, boring, unapproachable, unfriendly manner most of the time? And what can we do to change it? So part A and part B. And what what's a favorite connection incident that you've had through your work with a fan, a reader, or whatever, or even your experience out in the field? Yeah, ooh, good question. So I think the reason that science is oftentimes so inaccessible and boring is because it comes from academics and not all researchers are the same, right? Not all scientists are the same, but kind of like looking back at the history of science, it was done by white men in an ivory tower and their reach wasn't really getting to other people. Even though it's super relevant to other people, it was kind of pigeonholed in this tower where nobody could reach it or engage with it. And now there's this movement in science to kind of change that, to make science more accessible, to not Mm. gatekeep anymore, to be as transparent as we can. And that's a slowly evolving field. I mean, science has become more diverse. Science communication is a field that's like quickly growing among academics, especially among like grad students 
are more interested in like engaging with others instead of like just doing their research. And so I love that trajectory we're going on. And so I'm really hopeful of the future of science journalism and science communication and how science is presented. I mean, look at this past year, science has been in our face every single day with this pandemic. I mean, we've been hearing from Fauci all the time. He's super visible. We have science journalists working 24-7 to, like, take these complex studies from the CDC and be like, this is what you need to know to protect yourself. And so front and center, we've seen science every single day. And I think it's really highlighted why science communication is so important. And so I just hope that I can keep kind of that trend going with my own work. Okay, before I move on to, like, the fan question, was there any follow-up to that? Yes. I love that. Thank you for the pause because I got excited and and wrote this note down. Oh my goodness. Diversity. It's so fascinating to me. The more people I talk to, it never ceases to amaze me how representation and diversity are so important in every aspect of life. Because I didn't think about it from that perspective before. I thought, okay, scientist and using the language that you're learning, you're so busy trying to speak in that language and what's a new language for you that you forget to think about your audience. Or maybe you're only thinking, okay, I'm going to be talking to a colleague. Doctor-patient relationship is a much different conversation, doctor to doctor, doctor to nurse, for example. I didn't think about it from the perspective of if there is is a lack of diversity, then that might also impact the messaging, which is what I'm hearing you saying. Right, exactly. And like diversity is this big word that's been going around academia for the past few decades, right? It's like kind of the big thing hovering over everyone's heads, but you're like, are you guys really implementing diversity? Like, do you see the importance in it? Because when you have scientists and even communicators from different backgrounds, you can reach so many more people and like be able to engage with them and get on their level. Um, so for example, there's a science communicator I really like who, she's like an aerospace engineer, I think, and she works with NASA. And she had this really great example of she heard growing up in West Virginia and people being so invested in coal that they're very like anti-climate and anti-green like energy. And so what she says a lot is, if I'm going back to West Virginia, I'm not going to go back there and preach why we need green energy. I'm going to go there. I'm going to get on their level. I'm going to understand why they think this way. I'm going to ask them what the coal industry has done for them. And I mean, that's a crashing business. I mean, people's incomes and livelihoods and this thing, like coal miners have been and families for generations like they see that falling apart but as an outsider you don't really get that perspective but mm. if you're recruiting people from different communities different demographics you have a wider audience and people you can engage to, with and relate to and kind of get on their level and communicate because you can't just stand on a stage and say what you want to say you really have to get down and like find common ground with your audience and I think that's so important and diversity has been like a growing priority in academia and I'm so excited to see that because the more that happens the wider the audience is the more relevant it is the more kids growing up see themselves as scientists as communicators um, and I think that's just going to revolutionize 
the future. I mean, science is everything. It's going to change how we think about science, how we think about science policy, and all those has like have like very personal impacts on our lives. I completely agree, and I even see that there's been this very uh, vigorous discussion around the idea of vaccinations. I mean, we're recording this months before the episode will come out, but vaccinations and just a mistrust of the medical establishment, especially as an African-American woman in the African-American community. You know, we see that because I think part of the reason, I'm sure it's much more complex, but part of the reason is, as you're saying, if you don't see people who look like you and who can speak to you from the same experience, then it is going to be harder to establish trust in order to have a dialogue and then to inspire change. Yeah, exactly. And there is this like growing mistrust between like marginalized communities and like especially the medical sector, because like looking back in history, marginalized communities, especially in the U.S., like Latino, Hispanic, and African-American communities have been, like, literally the subjects of medical experiments, Mm. and they experience medical racism on an astronomical level that, like, white people in the U.S. don't get. So there is this deep-rooted mistrust because of, like, a racist medical system that was built up, and I think the more we can diversify, and this is a slow process, right? Like, this is slowly building up, but, like, the more representation we can see in STEM, especially in the medical sector, like that's just going to keep growing that trust between marginalized communities and the people doing the science because those two fit, they need to fit together. If we're going to see any progress, if we want to be healthy and safe and find that like solace and safety in science, then there needs to be that like understanding and like mutual, I guess like mutual understanding on both parties on like who is being affected and who is kind of like initiating this effect. Mm. Do you see yourself as a harbinger of change when it comes to promoting scientific messaging? I, hmm, good question. I mean, I, I hope so. I hope that like somebody out there is like, wow, I appreciate this article. I learned something that's relevant to, the, to my life, whether it's about COVID or anything else. Um, but I'm also very intentional about like the voices that I use in my reporting to make sure that I'm speaking or like using sources from different genders, from different backgrounds, from different ages, like varying locations to make sure that like I can also showcase the amazing scientists um, that are doing this work, but they are also marginalized within their own scientific communities and disadvantaged. So if I can put their voice out, um, and like have other people listen or hear or read a little more about them, I feel like that's just as important as the message itself as who it's coming from. I love that, because I definitely see you as an agent of change, a very powerful agent of change. Can you share a positive example of how a fan story or some somehow you felt, you felt that connection that you did make that change for someone? Yeah. Um, so while I was writing for Smithsonian a little while ago, I wrote this article about crows and ravens and how they're like super intelligent and they're self-aware. They can use tools to like 
access food and people don't really think of them as being smart because you're like, ah, oh, bird brains, whatever. Birds don't know what they're doing. But birds are very cool, right? We got to give some birds a little more respect here. But I always got like emails from the bird nerds after. It's like this very cool community <laughs> of people who love to geek out about birds. Like they're my favorite people. And somebody had told me that they have like crows living in their backyard. And within that crow family are also blue jays which people see a lot of and Mm -hmm. he said i put food out for the blue jays and the crows and they kind of came and ate it but then a crow came back with a nut put it down went came back with another nut and put it down on his porch and he was like was this crow like exchanging this food with me like i don't know what's happening here and that was like a really cool kind of connection because this person read my work and then was like oh here's this cool thing that birds did that's like personal and relevant to me. So they found some nugget of application for my work in their life. And that's always the most exciting for me is to people to kind of recognize the science around them mm-hmm. after reading my work, whether it's about like the climate or a weird little animal or a cool fun fact. Like science is way more exciting when you see it happening with your own eyes. And if I can mm. help people recognize it a little more in their everyday life, then I can just hope that it makes them feel like scientists on their tiny local level, you know? And it also makes us feel more connected and less separate because I just finished reading something the other day and they were talking about why pandemics have, why we're experiencing the pandemic and why pandemics happen in that one of the explanations is that we're becoming closer in proximity to wildlife. We are getting rid of a lot of our natural resources, and but we also feel more separate. We feel like there is no connection on another level to wildlife. So I find it interesting that you make the point of when you actually see it, when you actually think about oh, this is a relationship that I actually have with these birds that visit the trees in my yard. We're not separate. We do have a symbiotic relationship. Thank you. Yeah, you brought up a really good point. There's this kind of like dichotomy, right? Of like, we feel so separate from nature when like our lives are intertwined with it, right? Mm -hmm. And we do need to be more aware, right? We're mowing down forests. We're we're like massacring wildlife for our own benefit a lot of the time that we don't really realize the impact of that and like this is really common like it's a common concern like in the Amazon rainforest for example because people will mow down the rainforest put their cows out there the cows can contract a disease from some animal in the forest and bring it back to the farmer and then you have this like weird virus or something that jumps from the rainforest to the cow to the farmer like outbreaks can start like that and the more we kind of bulldoze over nature the more likely that is to happen and I think like it feels so far away right but it happens on a very local scale Mm -hmm. and so I honestly like as being like a wildlife student I grew this like more profound appreciation for all the little critters I see in my backyard or when I go on hikes. Like, as you said, with the birds, like I always recommend people put up bird feeders because you feel so much more connected to nature when you have these like little birds singing in your backyard and they wanna come feed 
on like the feeder you have out there. So you put out the seeds and it's like this cool little relationship you have going on and you'll start to recognize them and families will stay there. And I think when you can kind of connect on that tiny local level, it helps you think bigger. So like Mm. if this is happening with us in our backyard, then like if you take that with everyone around the world and how we all connect with wildlife, like it's on a monumental scale even though it can feel really far away sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's also something that I would love. Like my readers see is like the excitement and all the tiny things that you see every day, whether they're like possums or raccoons going through your garbage. And so if I can just like get someone to be a little excited about the critters they see in their backyard or like think a little bigger, then you can kind of start to understand how our lives are so intertwined and our health mm-hmm. is so intertwined with that of nature's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you alluded before to science being fluid and not perfect and not black and white. Do you think mistakes are opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... Science is, the way we're taught about it, like, if you go back to, like, elementary school or middle school or high school, it's, like, you make an observation, you design an experiment, you test it out, you get a hypothesis. Is it thumbs up or thumbs down? Did it work? Were you right? Or is it wrong? And that feels like you're shutting it down, right? Like, you got the answer to your question, you're moving on. But, like, whether you test something, like, correctly, if, like, hypothesis works, or even if it doesn't, it opens up, like, a million more doors for questions for you to go down. And so science isn't linear. It's constantly going back. And scientists, like, I spoke with one scientist who studies this, like, very specific species of sea anemone. Like, his whole career is studying this sea anemone, and he's still, like, I don't know anything about them. The way science is presented to us is right or wrong. Mm. But there is no, I mean, there's a right, probably, but figuring out what's wrong is also so important. I mean, we saw this happen in real time with the pandemic. At first, it was like, can COVID live on surfaces? Do you need to wipe it down? Like, how does it affect your body? And so we kept seeing that. And that's still changing, right? As more people mm-hmm. become infected, as scientists get better at studying, we keep coming back to those fundamental questions. Things are changing. It's never going to stay the same. And I think that's what's so, like, my favorite part of science is figuring out what doesn't work is just as important as figuring out what does. And, like, we do this on a tiny level every day, right? Like, if you eat something you don't like, you're like, I'm never going to eat this again, cross it off my list. And, like, one day you're just going to find something you do like. And we do this with relationships, too. Like, this was a really good thing that I enjoyed in my last relationship or my current one. And, like, figuring out what you don't like is just as important as figuring out what you do, right? And those two happen together. So you can't separate them really in your personal life or in science at all. One time they're saying this, the next minute they're saying something else. One time it's okay to eat eggs. Now I'm not supposed to eat eggs. Now it's okay to eat eggs again. I don't understand. Can't they get it right? Oh, (laughs) the can't they get it right part haunts me. Because we... Anybody would want an answer packaged in this neat little box with, like, very clear directions on what it means, right? But that's not the case. Every single day, scientists are learning one more tiny little thing to answer some, like, great question, whether it's about, like, nutrition or COVID. Scientists can base their whole career on answering the same question, right? Mm -hmm. And figuring out the different nuances, why things work, how they work, and... 
it's not just that scientists are constantly evolving, but like, so is technology. So is our capacity to do research. I mean, it wasn't until like, ugh, maybe the 1850s that people realized, or at least Western Europe realized that you need to be washing your hands. Diseases can spread like this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that obviously has been true forever, but even though it's like a fundamental practice, I mean, it was right a thousand years ago and it's still right today. And scientists have happy accidents all the time where like something goes wrong in the lab and they create something totally cool and amazing. And no question I feel like is ever fully, like you can't close the book on it, right? Mm, like mm. we are constantly learning, constantly revisiting, rewriting, challenging previous ideas of what science is and like de developing these new theories that can't they get it right is like scientists only know what they know, right? Like they are going to make conclusions based on the information they have on hand at the moment. But that information is constantly growing. And because it's constantly growing and becoming more robust and powerful, their interpretation of it is also going to change. The environment changes on a constant basis. So we can't underestimate the impact that our surroundings and our environments have on us. And time. It takes time to figure things out, too. And that capacity to listen and observe. Even with this vaccine, this mRNA technology that's been used in like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, that's been in progress for 40 years, I think, mm -hmm. like decades. But we're just now seeing the application of that, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. science also needs space and time mm -hmm. to let things grow, to let people jump on board, to propel this field forward. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm learning is a fluid process and it's an active process and it's not static. In the industrial age, it was about compliance. It was necessary to have people fall in line and, and learn rules and, and regulations, but we found that that's not so great anymore and we evolve and we change. It's kind of science, right? It's like, well, that worked at that time, but times are changing now and we evolve with the new information that we have. Yeah, exactly. And we think about this with everything, right? Like with the climate, like a hundred years ago, it was coal, coal, coal. And now we're seeing the effects of that. Like we need to rethink this. People are investing more into green energy, looking for more sustainable solutions because we're feeling the effects of climate change every day. Um, and same thing with like dieting, you know, what a trendy diet like a hundred years ago mm -hmm. might not be the same today. You know, people were eating like margarine out of a bucket once upon a time. Like that doesn't apply to us anymore. I mean, science told us this is the effect of that. And that came with time, right? Like we're not going to snap our fingers and know everything we know now than we like literally whatever day we're living in now, we know more than we did yesterday. What is the simplest and most powerful message you would give to a little girl who looks like you, who's thinking about how to learn about science? I would say, go outside with a magnifying glass and take a look. When you can see science, as I said earlier, like when you can see science happening right in front of you, I mean, that cracks the field wide open, right? Like if I, like I'm holding a ball right now, I'm fidgeting with this like ping pong ball. And if 
like a kid is playing with it, like why does it fall? Why does it roll like that? Or if you go outside with a magnifying glass, look at the grass. What do you see? Do you see any bugs? Look at the dirt. What's in the dirt? Look at the sky. What birds do you see? Why? How do birds fly? You know, like if you can ask these, and kids are so good at this, right? Like asking those questions that like we like are so simple, but we like don't really know how to explain the answer to. But look at science at a local level. See what makes you be like, oh, that was cool. Because that feeling is the best part of being in science is being like excited and engaged and wanting those answers and that starts young and it starts on the tiniest little level that's why I tell people to put up bird feeders all the time it's because it's way more than just feeding birds it's seeing science it's seeing wildlife and engaging and forming this relationship and it's never too late for us big kids exactly (laughs) oh my gosh never ever and I'm like still (laughs) my grandma's 95 years old and I still like we'll move her wheelchair, put her in front of the bird feeder and she loves it. Or I'll talk to her about like what I learned and like why this plant grows like this. And she loves it too. I mean, science is for everyone, all ages, all backgrounds. You know, here's an example in my life that I've been using right now. And it's, I didn't even think about it this way, but you know, we tell ourselves these stories. We have these limiting beliefs. And one of those things was, I'm sure you've heard pe- plenty of people say this. Oh, I don't have a green thumb. I kill everything that I bring home into my house. So I said to myself, you know, this was actually inspired by my sister. We're spending so much time at home right now. So uh, can I challenge myself to to actually try to improve my green thumb? Why am I killing the plants when they come home? There's got to be a reason. So what did I do? I observed. So I put a couple of the plants in one of the windowsills and I noticed that they weren't happy there. They were losing their leaves and I'm trying to figure out, okay, am I watering them incorrectly? Is it too often, too little? And then it was making the adjustment then. Okay, well, what about if I just try? You know, the curiosity that you mentioned. What about if I try to move it over to this other windowsill where it gets more sun on the east side of the house? And that particular plant was very happy. Some of the ones that are more shade loving liked staying in the previous place. And then I've been playing with how much to water each one and paying more attention to the labels. And everybody's a little bit happier now with the adjustments I'm making, whereas A few months ago, I would have just gone, you know what, forget it. I can't grow plants in my house. Just, it's just not for me and I won't even try. But it's just this willingness to bring the outside in to cheer us up in our home and, you know, have the green that makes us feel connected and calm and peaceful. And it gives you something to do with your brain too, to try to figure out like, why does something work? Why does something not work? And can I try and make adjustments? Exactly. That's such a great example because I've also taken up houseplant keeping while, while in quarantine. And my obsession has now grown to 50 plants. But that little bit, I mean, we don't think of that as science, right? Like it's not traditional science. It doesn't mm-hmm. take place in a lab or with someone in a white coat and goggles on. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in every decision we make. I mean, if you're cooking, science. You're gardening, science. You're mowing the lawn, science. Like, look outside. Like, science is everywhere, right? And I love it. I love that example. Okay, final two questions. Do you have a question for me? 
I do. Um, so I was thinking earlier, I mean, you are a pathologist, right? You know science, you practice science. I mean, like very, like you are a scientist, right? But now you take this more like holistic approach to health. And a lot of that comes from like within mental, spiritual, emotional, intellectual. And sometimes like science mm. isn't a good enough answer, right? So were there any times where you felt frustrated by science or you felt like science wasn't enough to give you the answer that you wanted? Because like, I'm always like, where's the scientific answer all the time for everything I do? But sometimes it's not there or it's not as visible. So like, how do you kind of navigate through that? A curious and a humble approach. I'm reading another book right now, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. I'm sure you've you've heard of it. It's, but if you haven't, it's spectacular so far. But it took this man in his introduction. He talked about the years of research that he has done into sleep, and he's one of the pioneers doing this work in California, and how little we understood decades ago, and still don't understand about sleep. You don't have all the answers. It's not possible to have all the answers. There's no such thing as perfection. And not everything is going to have a good one plus one equals two answer. As a matter of fact, the more you try to control and think you have all the answers to everything, the the more it unravels. That's what I noticed in my experience. And also by practicing pathology, quite frankly, I went into pathology partly because I thought, well, it's rigorous. We can see the answers. Like we put all the data together, we look at it, and we come up with a firm answer. And you know what? Not all the time. You just always did the best that you could with the amount of information you had. And it was not always perfect. There was an art to science that no one really talked about. Yeah, I think you nailed it when you said that. I mean, there's an art to science, right? It's fluid, it's changing. There are different approaches you can take. And you know what might we might feel with ourselves today, especially like in terms of our own health? Like we might not find a reason for that in the scientific literature now or ever. Maybe it'll happen in 50 years, you know? But like that doesn't make us in our experiences any less valid. So that was like a great example you just brought up. Mm-hmm. So what is your definition of what it means to be healthy in your life, Rasha? Oh my gosh, I thought this over and over and every answer, I was like, not good enough. But I think the closest I got to explaining my idea of what it means to be healthy is, for me, it's to have the energy and the strength and the means and the ability to do what I want to do in my life. I mean, I'm pretty ambitious. I mean, I'm 23 years old. I'm like excited and revved up for what's next for me. And I'm super adventurous and I have all these big goals to like travel and to work in remote places and this and that. But like, that's what brings me joy, right? Those are things that I cherish that I value. But for me to do that, I need to have the power and the energy to do that. And that fuel comes from understanding my own health to making sure mentally, spiritually, physically, all of that is in balance and working together. Because if not, then like 
I don't have the fuel to go on and I can't accomplish what I want to accomplish. And everybody's like goals and what they want to do is so different, right? And everyone's own personal goals about health and their ideas of it is so personal. But I think like for me, it's kind of finding that balance of like, how can I make all these different things work for me so that I can feel good waking up in the morning and doing what I want to do? And everyone's goals are different. It's very subjective. But like for me, if I can do what I want, then I feel pretty healthy and excited and happy. And that's where I draw the most joy from. So I hope that makes sense. Totally like makes sense. nugget of idea, but okay, great. Oh yeah, I love it. I love it. Thank you, thank you so much. This was an absolute joy. Oh, well, thank you for having me here. It was such a pleasure to meet you and to be able to like geek out with you about science and knowledge and discovery. I could go on and on all day, if you could tell. <laughs> and now it's time for the Mindful Minute. Find a comfortable and quiet place to sit. Lengthen your spine, keep your feet flat on the floor, and your shoulders stacked over your hips. Now notice your breathing. The gentle rise and fall of your inhale and exhale, respectively, from belly to collarbones and collarbones to belly. Think back to a time when you made a mistake. Now observe your breathing as you recall that incident. Now let's smooth out the breathing. Inhaling to a count of four seconds and exhaling to a count of four seconds. Come back to the present moment. Open your eyes and notice how you feel. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. And I could not at this point give up yoga because it really guides me and my, my muscles, my body movements in a way that it just hasn't, I've never been able to do before. So thank you, Nadine. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals, my daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass, yours truly, on percussion, 
and produced by Tim Buell. And original music for The Transitions by Charles Wilson, also known as Black Pac. Thanks for being here. See you next time.